Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess, or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas, from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167, or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. When Andrea Wynn was six years old, she and her family fled Saigon one week before it fell in 1975. Today, Wynn and I discuss their escape and her introduction to the American supermarket. It was so wonderful. It was roomy. It was quiet. There were no hawkers screaming, you know, trying to sell their wares. Or, you know, there were like piles of polished apples and wax oranges. And so it was like this wondrous thing to see what was available to us to make Vietnamese food here in America. Also coming up, we talk croissant with Alex Inews. We bake up lemon almond pound cake. And now it's my interview with Andrew Rogers. His documentary, Crooked Candy, tells the story of the Kindred Surprise smuggler. Andrew, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you so much. It's an honor to uh, speak with you. Uh, what's a Kinder Surprise egg? So Kinder Surprise chocolate eggs are these wonderfully magical contraptions that uh, originated overseas somewhere in Europe. And they are a chocolate egg that's hollow. And inside is a yellow plastic yolk that you can uh, open up. And inside that yolk is a toy or a game or a figure or a puzzle. Could be anything. Sort of like a Cracker Jack box. Uh, And the whole thing is wrapped in this uh, foil, white and orange with colorful letters. It's about the size of, you know, a typical egg. And uh, these are hugely popular all over the world. they're, They're sort of a rite of childhood, in fact, in Europe. Everybody knows about them. Everybody loves them. And, um... As it happens, they are not known in the United States for some very peculiar reasons. So I uh, Wikipedia'd this, uh, if that's a verb. Uh, 30 billion Kinder eggs have been sold since the early 70s, 12,000 different types of toys inside. So the problem is you can't get them here, at least not legally. Uh, Why are they illegal in the United States? 
It's a real peculiar thing. Uh, when the federal um, government created the FDA back in, I think, the 1930s, uh, they specifically prohibited anything that's a non-food item from being completely embedded within a food. From what I'd been able to gather, it seemed like there were things like pharmacists putting uh, poison or toxic medicines into chocolate balls or something like that, and it was hurting and harming and killing people. And so the government basically said, we don't want to allow anything to be sold in the United States that's completely surrounded by food that is not food. Um, and the government has decreed that uh, Kinder Surprise chocolate eggs, because it absolutely is a chocolate egg that completely surrounds this yellow plastic yolk, that that uh, falls counter to the rules, and so therefore they are illegal. I have a really obvious comment, but why does the FDA allow peaches or plums to be sold? Because they have a non-food item right in the middle, right? <laughs> and you could swallow that it and choke. That is a great comment. Yeah. It is exactly true. I love that. You should have been uh, part of the lobbying group, if there you was such a group, that uh, tried to get this ban overturned. So you found this so interesting that you actually decided to make a film about it, right? I did. Yeah, it was a very unusual situation. My wife is from Europe. She's from Bulgaria. And where I was living previously in North Carolina, you know, there's not a lot of Bulgarians there. And so we ran across somebody who was uh, from the same country as my wife and made friends and, and went to their house for dinner. And our host said, well, hey, I've got some, uh, some a real fun surprise for dessert. And he brought these eggs out. And I had never heard of or seen them before, didn't know anything about them. And over the course of dinner, our host uh, kind of explained the fact that they were legal and then copped to the fact that he's been smuggling them into the country <laughs> for years and years. And he's even been caught at the Canadian border trying to smuggle them. And what, and what happens? He just gets them confiscated or there's a fine or you go to jail or what? So, you know, it's interesting. The, the, our host is actually – was here on a green card. So he's, you know, paranoid beyond all belief that uh, he, could, he could screw up his, his life situation. So uh, – but he was caught uh, with I think 50 or 100 or something and he – they confiscated them and they said, uh, you know, these are banned. You're not allowed to have these in the United States. We're going to have to take these. And he said, well, can I just open them and, and keep the toys because he particularly collects the toys. And they said, no, no, they're ours now. Um, and uh, they confiscated them, and they they wrote up a citation of some sort. You know, it's it's the kind of it's the kind of the, the thing that he's been warned. So if he was caught again, uh, supposedly there's a there's a fee like a fine that can be charged. I've heard something to the effect of up to twenty five hundred dollars per egg potentially. But I've also after having you know learned this story and 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 made a film about this, uh, I've spoken with a lot of people who've come up to me, and I've had people tell me that. You know, customs agents have asked them to poke holes in the eggs so that it's no longer completely surrounded by a food item and then they can keep them. <laughs> I, you know, I, I've heard a lot of stories now at this point. So tell me about the toys, uh, 12,000 different toys over the last 50 years or so. Uh, what are some of the more interesting ones and why are they collectibles? Well, it, you know, in terms of our, why are they collectibles, I, I think what it is, there's a confined amount of space that these toys or these objects can fit within. And the engineers or the folks who've come up with these toys have really come up with some really phenomenal ways of creating elaborate toys uh, that you have to piece together. Uh, I've seen one that was like practically a foot-tall giraffe. What? Uh, which, you know, requires really? the rolled plastic pieces. Yeah. Oh, it's completely ingenious. Hmm. They also have figurines, and some of the figurines have a little bit of weight to them. Some of them do. And... 
I can tell you that kids love them and collectors because you just never know what you're going to get. You might get a really lame puzzle <laughs> that, you know, you have to piece together and everybody's sort of like, oh, that's no fun to play with or whatever. But you might also get, you know, an elaborate giraffe. So these eggs must cost more than a couple bucks, right? If you got these cool toys inside, are they, no. are they more expensive? No, no. They're really just like a buck and a half, really? two bucks maybe if you're, if you know, yeah, no, they're very inexpensive. Huh. Uh, I mean, you know, look, some of these toys are fairly disposable and, you know, we've been given a couple and my children may or may not have opened them. And, uh, you know, the toys that they get, they're fun to play with for a few minutes. Sometimes they save them for a few days. Um, you know, the, the person who we profiled in our film, he's he's been collecting these for years and he saves his toys and he takes care of them and he has collections of them. And he's got these baggies in a big plastic container that he keeps of all the toys in each series. Uh, and, and, and that's what's really fascinating to me is just this – the intense variation of things, of different countries, cultural figures like Asterix and Obelisk is in one and they're a French comic and, or Belgian comic. And over here is some, you know, a collection of race cars. Over here are some helicopters. It's, it's, it's pretty interesting. We, we also did some research and some people think that um, the Kinder Egg is now legal in the United States. Is that true? It is definitely not legal. The government has not changed the rules. Um, what has happened is that Kinder, the company that makes these eggs, has a second product, which is similar but different, called Kinder Joy. These are plastic eggs, not foil-wrapped, and they actually kind of – as you open it, it comes in halves. And you peel back this plastic layer in, on one half, and there's a toy. And you peel back the plastic layer on the other half, and there's like a – I don't know, like a hazelnut paste with a little chocolate ball in the middle or something. It is a very different uh, product. Andrew Rogers, thank you so much. The true story of the Kinder Surprise Egg. Thank you so much for having me. That was filmmaker Andrew Rogers. The documentary is called Crooked Candy. Mill Street Radio is also available as a podcast. You can listen and subscribe anytime on your favorite podcast app. Right now, my co-host Sarah Moult and I will be taking your call. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101 and the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. Sarah, are you awake? Are you ready to go? Chris, I am ready to do this. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? My name is Doc Zello. I'm from Germansville, Pennsylvania, and thank you for taking my call. I really uh, like program. <laughs> well, we like it too. I yes. Guess. We love it because we like callers like you. So yes. how can we help you? Okay. I have decided to take my great-grandmother's recipe that I've worked on since I'm five years old and add buttermilk to it to enhance the flavor. Is there anything I have to do if I substitute buttermilk for milk, like increase the sugar or decrease the sugar or change something? Yes. Buttermilk is more acidic than milk, which means you have a more acid batter which means you're going to need to use more baking soda, soda to balance it out. Is there baking soda and baking powder in this recipe or just one or the other? Yes, baking soda and baking powder in the recipe. I believe it's one to three ratio. I also use sour cream, which is mixed in with the milk. That's acidic. The regular recipe uses milk and sour cream? Yes. Half a cup of milk and maybe a cup of sour cream or... You know, I play with. I, you know what? I don't think without much sour cream in it. I don't think you need to really change the recipe. Increase the baking soda by fifty percent, and then take that out of the baking powder. Okay. So, if you had a teaspoon of baking soda, for example, we use two teaspoons of baking soda, and then reduce the baking powder by a teaspoon. I don't think All it's right. going to be that 
different because he has so much sour cream. Yeah, because sour cream is acidic also. Right. I have decided buttermilk might be fun in all my recipes, and I was thinking that there was something I had to do. <laughs> no, buttermilk is great for baking because uh, you get a little extra flavor and the texture is good. Explain the cake. Is this a sheet cake? Is this a layer cake? I usually make it as a sheet cake. That's the way my great-grandmother made it because she has like 13 children. So, <laughs> you know, it goes further. <laughs> and is it particularly moist or chocolatey or the texture? What is it you love about it? It's a fairly moist. I wouldn't say very moist, very chocolatey chocolate cake. I use cocoa powder. I use coffee to enhance the cocoa powder. This sounds great. One thing I want to say, though, is there's two kinds of buttermilk you can find in the store. And I think for this cake, you might want to try to find the full, full fat. fat. Because if you were using regular milk and you were using sour cream, you've got more fat in there, which is going to contribute to the moisture and texture of the cake. So I would look for buttermilk that's got the full fat. Good question. That sounds great. Thanks for calling. And thank you for having me. I appreciate it. A real pleasure. And I'll let you know how the cake comes out. Oh, please do. (laughs) Thank Thank you. you. Yeah. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's on the line? Hi, this is Kahende. Hi, Kahende. Where are you calling from? I am calling from Houston, Texas. How can we help you today? So I like to make a lot of, uh, like, roast dishes, so, like, roast chicken or roast veggies. I do them in the oven with, like, a regular baking uh, dish, but they keep getting rusty on me, and I was wondering how do I either prevent that from happening or what kind of a dish can I use so I get the same kind of heat transfer properties without you know, having to buy dishes all the time because they're super rusty. Is this like a roasting pan? No, it's just like a regular, like, 9 by 13. Oh, you mean like a lasagna pan? Yes. And what is it? I guess it's aluminum, yes. Yeah, I think that's the problem. What you need to do is get something that's coated. Okay. I mean, for vegetables, I like to use a rimmed sheet pan. Okay. You know, which would be stainless steel coated and maybe aluminum inside on what it's made yeah, out of. Yeah, we, we like to roast chicken on a half-baking sheet, which has about an inch-high rim. And the reason we like it is because the it heat... browns better. Well, if you have sides on a pan, the flow of heat's going to be restricted. So we do all of our roasting now on just half-sheet trays. So you do a half-sheet pan, what size chicken? It's a three- to four-pound chicken. And you spatchcock it. Oh, you, you didn't mention that. Well, no, if you just flatten it, you take the backbone out and flatten it. Kahinde, That's the best way to cook. Do you know about spatchcocking? It's a great way to cook I chicken. I do. I haven't tried it yet, but yeah. I've seen it. Yeah, because I would do that, too. Just get a good pair pan. of poultry shears, heavy-duty scissors, and cut out the backbone, turn it over, flatten it down with a breastbone, press flat, and then uh, the meat, the white and dark, cooks at the same right. time. I mean, that is a great way to do it. The other thing we do is you can cook parts, and in the center of the baking sheet, put a few eight or nine cloves of garlic, which will cook at the same time, take the chicken out and whisk the garlic with the fat and add a little bit of wine or other chicken herbs. Chicken broth or something. And you make the sauce right in the pan. That's right. the other thing That's to yummy. do. But the main point, which you called us about, is, you know, why is it all rusting? And I think it's because it's aluminum. And aluminum reacts. So you need to get stuff that's coated, you know, different metal or coated with stainless steel, which doesn't react with food. And I agree with Chris. I use my rimmed sheet pans. They're my workhorse. Yeah. You know, you get really nice color on your roasted vegetables also. I have like six of them. I do And they're like 10 bucks each or something. Yeah. They're really good. So that's what we would recommend. Stainless 
suspend sheet pan is what we're saying is uh, the best solution? I think so, yes. I mean, although I wouldn't okay. roast a whole chicken unless you spatchcocked it in one of those uh-huh. because it will spatter all over the place. But flattened, yeah. you'll be better. Okay. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank Our you. pleasure. This is Milk Street Radio. If you have a question about Instant Pot dinners or slow cooker suppers, give us a call at 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Ann Robbins from San Antonio, Texas. How can we help you? I have read several recipes where it says to toast your spices. But every time I do that, I either burn my spices or it doesn't seem to toast them at all before we start adding flavors and everything, other foods for added depth. I'm just kind of wondering what I'm doing wrong. Well, let's start with how you're doing it. Are you doing this in a empty, like, cast iron pan on top of the stove? I've tried that, but I've also tried it with, you know, oil or I've tried it with butter or ghee as well. And it doesn't seem to change my results much. These are whole spices or ground spices? I've tried both. Well, generally, if you're doing whole spices, let's say you're toasting them in a skillet, like a dry cast iron skillet would be the best. And the two things you want to be careful of, don't use high heat, sort of low heat's good. Start in a cold pan. And watch it like a hawk. Do not take a phone call. <laughs> Do Don't not go answer anywhere. the doorbell. Okay. And yeah. Yes. And when it starts to smell, you get yeah, it it's right off take, and get it out of there. Take two or three minutes, and as soon as you get that aroma, Sarah's right, get it out of that pan. And don't take it off the heat and leave it in the pan because it'll continue you don't to get cook. it out of the pan. If you're using ghee or using oil or butter and you're adding spices to it with the onions or whatever you're cooking, mm-hmm. that shouldn't be a problem because you have the liquid and you're really not going to overcook the spice. It's usually when you dry toast that's the problem. It happens. When it starts to go, it goes. You have like 10 seconds okay. to get it out of the pan. And I see. It's, and not, say, it's not a good time to mix a cocktail. <laughs> no, no, or take, or take a phone call. Or take a phone no, call. No, generally okay. I think uh, it's recommended to toast whole spices yes. and to cook the ground spices in fat. You know, recently I discovered this cool tool. And, I, you know, I love kitchen gadgets, but only if they make sense. And it's this little mm-hmm. tiny round toaster thingy. Ain't expensive. What's a little tiny toaster thingy mean? It's called a kotobuki. What? Yeah. It's a little round skillet with a lid on top that's mesh lid that you slide on. So you can see, you can look really? in, and then you just put it on the burner. It's like a little popcorn popper? That's it. And I oh, was that's cool. doing um, one of my, I have a public television show, and I had a guest on, and we were making an Indian recipe, and we had to toast some spices. And she said, here, use this. And That's I, great. And it was like, wow. Well, what's, what's the name of it again? Kotobuki. How do you spell it? K-O-T-O-B-U-C-I. I think Kotobuki. it's called the sesame seed toaster. At any rate, what's fun about it, you'd still have to apply the same things, and meaning mm-hmm. don't do it on high heat, get it off before, you know, when it starts to smell it, get it out of the pan. But it's all very controllable. And what I like about it, one of the most expensive things that we all burn all the time are pine nuts, you know, pignole. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you throw them in the oven and you go answer yeah. the phone no. call and then you want to kill yourself because they're so expensive and you've just burned them. So I like to toast them on top of the stove and this is the perfect size for doing that too. Before we leave, whole spices that you toast yourself then grind, a little tiny grinder like coffee grinder, uh-huh. that'll add a lot of flavor to your dish versus using pre-ground in a Absolutely. I mean, it's a good idea in general yeah. to toast all your spices whole and then grind them and then use them in the recipe. So. 
I learned something. Oh. Kotobuki. I like yeah. That. Yes. All right. Thanks for calling. All right. Yes. Well, thanks, Thank Anne. you very much. I yeah. appreciate it. Pleasure. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Up next, my interview with Andrea Wynn, author of Vietnamese Food Any Day. We'll be right back. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. This is Christopher Kimball. You may have heard that we just started running international culinary tours. And one trip I am particularly excited about is Istanbul, which is based in part on my recent visit. Along with our partners at Culinary Backstreet's, we put together an itinerary that goes way beyond the Grand Bazaar. This May, we'll visit local neighborhood markets, take a sail up the Bosporus, and harvest vegetables from farms in the city's ancient moats. You'll sample Turkish cheeses, flatbreads, pistachios, pomegranate molasses, and olive oil. And since this is, in fact, a Milk Street trip, you'll use those ingredients in hands-on cooking classes with local families and chefs. There are just three spots left on our May trip, so visit 177milkstreet.com tours. That's 177milkstreet.com tours to claim your spot. Plus, listeners to our radio show save 5% with code Istanbul. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with Andrea Wynn, chef and author of Vietnamese Food Any Day. Andrea, welcome back to Milk Street. Thank you for having me back, Chris. We, we touched on this uh, in, in our first interview some time ago, but I wanted to go back to the early 70s in Vietnam when you were still living there. Um, I didn't really get a sense of where you lived, what it was like. You were, I guess six years old when you left in 1975. Um, Could you just fill us in and paint that picture? Sure. Um, We lived in Saigon in um, District 3 in um, an area called Phu Nguyen. And when you travel to Vietnam and you land at the Saigon airport, you end up taking this road into the central part of Saigon, District 1. And along that road where it's very, very wide and it goes over a bridge, the first bridge that you go over, we lived right off that bridge. Hmm. So on my first trip back to Vietnam, you know, I was looking for that bridge and I said, oh my God, there's our home. And that's where we lived. We had a three-story home. My parents both worked. So, you know, we were fortunate to live in in comfortable conditions. And it was a, it was 
a fun time, but a very um, stressful time if you were an adult. My mom talks about the inflation that would just change and would just grow on, you know, a regular basis. And she said you wouldn't know how much it would cost to run a household. So, uh, and you mentioned, we, we talked about this before, you, you were getting ready to get on a boat in 1975 when Saigon fell. Uh, I think you said your mother was sewing uh, life preservers or something, but you ended up getting out on a plane. How did your father or mother uh, organize that, do you know? Well, um, they were planning this escape by boat, and the reason why my mom was sewing life jackets, um, because... There were no such thing as life jackets being sold in Vietnam, especially to, you know, civilians at that time. So she was sewing them because she was sewing pieces of gold in between the styrofoam, you know, because my parents didn't know if we were caught at sea unawares and separated, at least we'd each have a life jacket and some form of currency. And so when the boat escape fell apart, my mom um, and dad were like trying to figure out how do you get out. So my dad went all over town talking to every single American he could find and said, how do we get out? And um, eventually what happened was through my aunts who had worked for the U.S. State Department, um, there was a man who had worked with them in the 70s and had gone back to the U.S., And right before the fall of Saigon, he came back to Saigon and tried to get out as many people as he could. And he agreed to allow my aunts to bring my family along with my uncle's family. And so we were able to get into Tanzanian Airport. We faked papers to get into the airport because at Mm. that point, people were so, so scared. And if you could get your ass into that airport, you were safe. So how many weeks or days was this before the actual fall of Saigon? We flew out one week before, so we were really lucky. So you're in America now. Um, You say spaghetti dinners in your household often included the side of rice, which I just find that charming. But but then you also came to an American supermarket, something which you had no experience with. So what was the supermarket like the first time you walked in one? It was so wonderful. It was roomy. It was quiet. Um, there were no people, you know, hawkers, you know, screaming, you know, trying to sell their wares. Or, you know, there were like piles of, of apple, polished apples and, and waxed oranges and chicken. Oh, my goodness, because chickens are a luxe ingredient in Vietnam. And, you know, here in the United States, there were like all of these chickens and chicken parts, and they were affordable suddenly, um, even though we were, you know, freshly arrived refugees. And so it was like this wondrous thing to explore and to see what was available to us to make Vietnamese food here in America. I also like the fact that even though your dad grew lemongrass and mint, et cetera, but you were also buying Hostess fruit pies and strawberry-flavored Nesquik, right? I mean, it wasn't... Yeah. You you were taking the the full American experience. Those were exotic foods. Because, you know, pastries, um, Western pastries in Vietnam are a luxury thing because there isn't that much white flour and sugar and, and butter. And even the hostess, you know, fruit pies are like fried, but we didn't know the difference. We were newly here and we wanted to try all these things. My parents were extremely curious people. And, um, you know, we're talking about my mom who made, was making her own puff pastry at home because of the French influence in Vietnam. She's like, oh, I can make puff pastry now because I have butter and flour. 
And so she was doing that. But then we were like looking around and taking checking out American um, magazines like Good Housekeeping and Family Circle and asking ourselves, what is all that stuff? What's chili? You know, and and what is this spaghetti thing? And so we were like really into trying things, especially if they were affordable and in the um, soon to be expired or or expired um, discount shelves. So let's talk about your book, Vietnamese Food Any Day. You have a chicken stock recipe and you use an apple or part of an apple in it. Could you just please explain that to me? Sure. You know, like you need that kind of savory sweetness Mm -hmm. in a good stock. So um, in Vietnamese, when we say that something is savory, we call it dump da. And dump da refers to this kind of gravitas of food. It's like that, mm, you know, that, that... that savory, that umami. And so to get at that, people oftentimes use MSG. Right. So MSG in Vietnamese is called bột ngọt. Bột uh, means powder and ngọt means um, sweet. And so it's giving that unusual hint of sweetness to the savoriness. And so I was thinking, like, how can you, like, encourage that, that umami depth naturally without having to revert to MSG. And the apple allows for that in a very natural, soft way so that you don't need to use any other kinds of ingredients to push and to to help, you know, the chicken express itself in its full, you know, glorious savoriness. So I, here's another thing I like. Uh, you, you, you talk about Vietnamese food. I love what you say. you say. There's so much damn chopping involved, so much prep work, and people traditionally didn't have a machine. So you're pounding and chopping and squatting on the floor. So th- there's a lot of work here. And I know one of the things I like about this book, Vietnamese Food in a Day, is you, you sort of pull that back and make it manageable. But that's a complaint you have about uh, the prep work involved in this kind of cooking. I do. And, you know, the thing is that when you, there is that romanticism, right? That, you know, everybody's going to gather around and and they're going to do all the prep work. And, you know, one time I was invited to do some prep work with some friends in Saigon and they don't gather around a table. They are squatting on the floor. And if anyone has squatted on the floor (laughs) in Vietnam and then tried to and chop and then get up from that position, it is so hard. And I, you know, I was born with some genes that are pretty good for squatting. But when I could barely get up, they all laughed at me and thought, hmm, she has spent way too much time overseas. And because I could, I, could, I had to like kind of roll over onto my knees <laughs> and like sort of like prop myself up. And so, you know, just the sheer physicality of it, of like, you know, being on the floor like that is not easy. But on top of that, there's just a lot of damn chopping. <laughs> Uh, I noticed you have a, a man- green mango salad in the book. Uh, it, it just reminds me of like a papaya salad, right, in uh, Thailand. Uh, are there – what are the connections to the countries around Vietnam? I mean the, the obvious ones in terms of food. You know, people have gone back and forth across – there are not even borders to people. It's like crossing a river or a stream and you're in right. another country, right? So – the Vietnamese um, repertoire has like green papaya salads. So the northern version involves more Chinesey types of ingredients, in particular uh, dry beef jerky, and is dressed typically with like a uh, chili and soy sauce dressing. Now you go further south, you'll have like shrimp in there, 
and it's dressed with fish sauce and lime juice and garlic and chili. So it's like sunny and brighter. And in the north, it's like dusty. And the difference, the interesting difference between these two preparations and what's done in, say, northern Thailand or in Laos and Cambodia is that there's none of that pounding. So, you know, we we read about pock pock, you know, the, the sound right. that in the, um, the with the mortar and pestle. We don't pound. We're squeezers. <laughs> and so what yeah. we do... <laughs> We like to squeeze. And so what we do is we will like shred the uh, the green papaya and then um, we'll massage a little uh, salt and sugar in there. And then you wring it out in fabric and then you dress it. So once you wring it out, it's like a dry sponge. And then you hit it with the dressing and it soaks everything up. What is it like uh, to live somewhere for six years? Uh, you come to America, you go back occasionally um, is that just a sort of distant memory for you at this point, or is it s- still core to how you see yourself? It is a little bit of both, and it's very strange, and I'm glad you asked that question because, for example, when I was young, I still had, like, these photographic memories of being in Vietnam because it was a terrifying time. Um, even though, you know, I was six years old and I wasn't fully aware of what was going on, I felt the fear and the panic and the stress that my parents underwent. And, um, when we came to the United States, for them, Vietnam was no longer their country. Mm -hmm. They have never returned because I think it would be so painful for them. And so for me, that is no longer my country I have roots there that's within me. And sometimes when I read Vietnamese or I speak to Vietnamese people, the language skills come back. And what happens is I found that as I entered my mid-40s, my language skills were getting better Hmm. because I found certain words just come out of my mouth. And I thought, where did that come from? Because when I was younger, I would not have come up with those words. But now as I'm older, somehow embedded in my brain are these terms and these, you know, cultural nuances that are coming out. And my parents have been really good about maintaining Vietnamese language skills and cultural mores in our home. But they'll also speak Vietnamese and they go back and forth and um, between English and Vietnamese. And it's been a door for me to go back and forth to, so that it's not one or another. Andrea, always a pleasure. Great to have you on Milk Street. Thank you so much, Chris. That was Andrea Wynn. Her latest book is called Vietnamese Food Any Day. You know, immigrants to the United States often talk about their first experience in the American supermarket. The limitless selection and the cheap prices are, well, inconceivable. My first trip to a Chinese supermarket in Boston was also a case of culture shock. Durian, geoduck, clams, chili garlic sauces, noodles, Asian greens. It was, in fact, culinary overload. So even though I travel the world for Milk Street, it's also true that the supermarket is, in fact, the ultimate cultural ambassador. There's no need to cross an entire ocean. Just drive down the street to find an old world right here in the new.
It's time to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, lemon almond pound cake. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. You know, we were recently uh, in Paris uh, looking for sort of new foods and old foods that we would want to bring back here to Milk Street. One place we love was the Rose Bakery. It's been around at least a dozen years. Uh, she's English, from an English baker, and it's essentially a tea house. So she has a lot of cakes and things uh, and vegetables and soups, but simple fare. It's right down from Place Pigalle. Place Pigalle is kind of the Times Square of Paris. It's in transition, I would say. It used to be really pretty awful, and now it's getting a little better. But in any case, she's been there a long time, and she's really famous for her baking. And one of the things she has is a lemon pound cake, which sounds simple, but it was just absolutely perfectly done. So um, I ate a couple slices, uh, <laughs> and I brought the concept back here uh, with her help. So what did we do to that lemon pound cake to make, turn it into something that we would want to do at Milk Street? Right. So hers is actually a lemon almond pound cake, which you might think just means the addition of almond extract. But actually, she uses almond flour in the recipe. And that's something that we do here at Milk Street a lot in our baking recipes is substitute some of the all-purpose or cake flour for a nut flour. And what that adds is a really nice nutty flavor and super moist texture, which allows us to kind of cut back on the butter a little bit. So this is pound cake and pound cake is a little tricky so any any basic rules to making this well the thing about pound cake is it's not that many ingredients but everything is kind of important here so the ingredients have to be the right temperature you don't want to use cold eggs or cold butter you want to mix it the right way typically it's made by creaming the butter and sugar together and then adding in the flour we did it a little bit differently here and that was to kind of lower the gluten development so instead we did a reverse creaming method here which means you put the butter in with the flour first. That's right, exactly. So what happens is the flour gets coated with butter and it kind of has this protective shield around it, so not as much gluten is going to develop. So we start by adding the sugar and the lemon zest to the mixer, then add in the butter, let that go around at a very low speed so that the flour gets nice and coated. Then we add in the eggs and the vanilla, and then we really whip it up at medium high and kind of get it into that thick batter. And then she finishes it with a, a syrup, a glaze of some kind too? That's right. So ours, we added a, um, a topping of sliced almonds, which added a nice crunch to it and a little bit more almond flavor. And then we finish it with a lemon simple syrup. So that's just water, sugar, and lemon juice. Uh, you take it out of the oven, let it cool for a little bit, poke it with some toothpicks, and then brush it with this delicious lemon syrup. Adds some really great flavor, but it also keeps it super moist. This cake can last for a few days, but I doubt it will oh, last yeah, sure. for a few days if you make this. Um, and also, this is a category of cakes you see a lot in Europe, which are one-layer cakes with some sort of glaze or syrup on top. It's not two-layer. There's no special frosting or filling, right? Exactly. It's very simple. Exactly. It's elegant, very. but it's also easy to do. Lynn, thank you very much. That's the lemon almond pound cake from the Rose Bakery in Paris. You can get this recipe for lemon almond pound cake at 177milkstreet.com. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, French guy Alex Inews talks about the croissant crisis in Paris. That's coming up in just a moment. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Next up, Sarah Moult and I will be taking a few more of your culinary questions. Sarah, you ready for a uh, new batch of questions? Yes, Chris, I am very ready. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's on the line? 
My name is Sharon. Hi, Sharon. What's your question today? I have trouble cooking eggplant. Um, I found this wonderful recipe in an Israeli cookbook, but when I saute eggplant, it's so greasy. It just needs so much oil. And baked, it's not as good. So I'm wondering how other people get eggplant to get to the right texture. You're sautéing this in olive oil? You sauté it in canola oil. You cut them into three-quarter inch rounds and season with salt. And then there's a homemade tahini sauce. And you sprinkle on top carob molasses, pomegranate seeds, and pistachios. Two things you can do. One is, after you salt them, let them sit. You can press it between layers of paper towel, and that'll actually get a lot of liquid out as well. The other thing is microwave on high, five minutes on paper towels. That'll get a lot of the liquid out. I was just going to say the point of getting the liquid out is so that then it doesn't absorb as much oil, correct? Right. It gives you a meatier texture, too. That sounds like a great idea. I was going to throw something else out. The other thing about salting is that supposedly it tamps down the bitterness because eggplants are naturally bitter. Um, Something my mom used to do is she would slice eggplant and then she would brush it with her vinaigrette. She always had vinaigrette in the fridge, you know, with olive oil and and then just bake it in the oven. And I was going to say another way around this is to take the eggplant and salt it or don't salt it, pat it dry or don't pat it dry, but then toss it with oil and just roast it in the oven until it gets nice color on it, and then go on from there. And you won't need anywhere near as much oil to cook it. Oh! That's a good idea. If you have a really good, fresh eggplant, you know, that's got a nice, smooth skin and is firm, it should not be bitter, you know, and fairly small. So then you can skip that step, cut but, it up. But the salting was also like it is for cabbage to remove some of the liquid. Excess liquid, of course. But if you roast it also because it's dry heat... Right. That's true. You're going to naturally evaporate some of the liquid. It's like when you roast vegetables as opposed to boiling or steaming vegetables. You know, they seem to have more concentrated flavor. No, that's a good point. And it's just a lot less messy, you know? I have an idea. Right. Would you like to co-host the show? <laughs> yes. That's pretty good. Yeah. That was a good answer. Why, thank you. Yeah, you want a job? I'll take it. I'll take okay. it. You mentioned small eggplants. I usually buy these big, fat, purple eggplants. eggplants. They're not great. I think Japanese-style eggplants, the smaller ones, are, tend to be better and tend sweeter. Tend to be less bitter. Yeah. Have fewer seeds. Oh, that sounds great. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Okay. Thanks for calling. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. If you have a cooking question or just want to debate the merits of washing your herbs, give us a call, 855-426-9843. One more time, 855 855- Four two six nine eight four three, or email us at questions at milkstreetradio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Dan. Hi, Daniel. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from uh, Goffstown, New Hampshire. How can we help you? I had an issue with, uh, I was making shrimp boil in a foil and throwing them in the oven. And when I put in all the ingredients and everything, and I cut up four potatoes and I put them in, the potatoes came back like extremely hard, like as, as hard as a. Wait, wait, wait! You're, you're doing a shrimp boil in aluminum foil in the oven. You're trying to do a sheet pan meal, is what you were trying to do. Right. Yes, ma'am. Okay. So, okay. how were the shrimp prepared? Were they tossed in oil, salt, and pepper, spice mix? What What did you do to them? So yeah, they were put in uh, salt and pepper, and I also in oil, and I put an Old Bay season in. Okay. I had the shrimp, the andouille sausage, the corn, 
and they were cooked perfectly. The foil, I assume, was closed up, right? Indeed. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Okay. So now I now I understand where you're going with this one. It's a papio clam bake in the oven. Right. Okay. Shrimp oil. In yeah. the yeah. oven, yeah. Yeah. Okay, we got it. The corn, I assume you cut into one-inch chunks, right? You didn't just throw yeah, in a whole yes, cob. I, yeah. Okay. And what kind of potatoes were you using? I believe they were like your regular uh, red potatoes. Large ones or small round ones? The smaller ones. The small They're ones. cut up into like inch cubes. This is like a Sherlock. This no, is a curious no. case of I, the... I still think <laughs> that shrimp would cook faster than a potato in the oven. No, it's going to, but how long did you cook it? It was in the oven for in uh, 425, yeah. and then I put it in for 20 minutes. And then after I put them in for 20 minutes, you know, I tasted everything to see if yeah. everything came out okay. And the potatoes are still stiff, so I put them in for an additional 20 more minutes. And they came out, like, not soft or tender or anything at all. What I might do is just steam them or blanch them or microwave them ahead of time before you throw them in the package with everything else. Did you like the way everything else tasted? Everything else tasted perfect. My only issue was the potatoes. darn potatoes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the other issue is potatoes do take time to cook. Even if you boiled one inch or mm-hmm. one and a half inch chunks of potato, it would take you 20 minutes in yeah. water. And you're sitting there in a foil packet in an it's... oven, and it's going to take a long time to heat up those potatoes. So it's not... That unusual. Yeah, no, no. It might have just been that they were going to take longer anyway. I was thinking maybe like poking holes in them before I I do it the next time. I I would blanch them. I would cut them into, you know, and just get them halfway there. Yeah, get them three quarters the way there. And then, you know what, also, I think that they would absorb some of the flavors from the shrimp much better than going in raw. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good idea. That sounds perfect. All right. Now I'm more motivated to cook them. Okay, good. Thank you. All right, Hope that helps. I'm yeah. impressed you did that. Good for you. <laughs> Thank Thanks. you. Yes. All right, bye now. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Next up, it's French guy, Alex Inews. Alex, how are you? Hey, Christophe, how are you? I'm good. I, I like that, Christophe. That's good. I just Frenchanize your, your, yourself. I, I've been working on croissant lately, so I'm very good. Okay, w- why should anybody make croissant at home? I, the French don't, right? Uh, the French don't make croissant, and for a reason, we have bakeries at each and every corner in every street. But the reason why I want, I want to talk about croissant today is because they are very underrated. I think this pastry probably is the most underrated pastry in France ever so far, period. <laughs> you sure about that? I just want to make sure. <laughs> the, 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 the reason why is that it only costs like probably $1.5 to get one croissant in a bakery. And I think it's a steal. For this amount of money, you get the legacy of French cuisine, all wrapped up in a buttery uh, paper bag. Do you buy your croissant at a bakery, or, or is this at a cafe? No, you, you buy them at the bakery, but when you're having breakfast at the cafe, you don't order them at the cafe. You, you sneak them in. You walk into a cafe, and you bring your own croissant? Yeah, for many reasons. In my defense, croissant in boulangerie or in bakeries, they are always better in terms of crispiness, in terms of freshness. Okay. You see, they, they, this is one thing that is very interesting to understand. There are different types of croissants. Some of them are more on the pastry side. Some of them are more on the bakery side. It means that some of them are sweeter. They are just a tad more, not crumbly, but they have this 
pastry style to them. But others, my favorite, they would go more into the bread side of things. They have this doughy, almost savory vibe to them. These are my favorite. I couldn't order like a, a... a pâtissier version of my croissant. That that would be insane. So so let's define Alex's perfect croissant. Is this incredibly crispy and well browned on the outside and soft and bready on the inside, or is it something different? No, I, I think it's pretty close. I like my croissant to be golden brown, that deep, you know, dark color. There's nothing worse than a lame, undercooked, you know, pale yellow <laughs> croissant. It's just disgusting to me. And, and so, have you ever ordered a croissant at a fast food restaurant here in America? <laughs> yeah, that's something that? I, I that's something I do all the time whenever I'm traveling and I'm and I'm traveling a lot just to have the feel of what is exactly a croissant in people's mind. So, when we're talking about croissant, are we sure we are talking about the same thing? So, what are the secrets of making the perfect croissant? Yeah, that's why in the first place I mentioned that this piece of pastry is underrated. For one and a half buck, you get three days of work. Three days of a skillful craftsman. First day, they, they make dough. Luckily for you, but not luckily for them, in Paris they tend to use sourdough. So hmm. it's taking a full day just to make the dough. Hmm. Then they leave it overnight to proof. Then on the second day, they make laminated dough using butter, you know, layers of butter and dough uh, flattened together using beautiful technique, extremely precise, accurate technique. And then they would let it overnight to proof. So that's two days, two nights. And on the third day, bakers would actually form the croissant. And this, you would get it in a bakery for such a cheap price. And that, that just blows my mind, to be honest. Is the shape of the croissant, I've read a lot of pieces that say it had absolutely nothing to do with the Turks at the gates of Vienna, etc. cetera. Uh, do you know anything about the tradition of the shape? There is a fun fact about the shape itself. The best croissants I know are all straight. None of huh. them are crescent-shaped. If, if you see a crescent-shaped croissant in Paris, just move along. You've got nothing really? to do with this croissant because it hasn't been made with butter. If it's straight, the, the chances that they've been using butter are 100%. So once you get a croissant, do you put anything on it or you just eat it plain? Blasphemy. <laughs> That's course. how we call this move. <laughs> no, course. you don't stuff a croissant with jam, with, with peanut butter or with chocolate. You can. I won't be mad at you if, if you were to do so, but I won't do this because I'm enjoying the artisan vibe of the croissant. I'm enjoying all the efforts that bakers and, 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 and pâtissiers have been putting into such a delicacy. So one last thing. So let's go back to the cafe. Here, here is Alex walks into a little cafe in the morning, let's say. You sit down. Maybe you get your presse orange juice. You might order a coffee. And then you have this bag <laughs> with a croissant in it, <laughs> and you pull it out. And, and the waiter looks at you. Uh, and what, what's no, the conversation you have with the waiter? No, I, I, I just sneak it in. That's part of the charm. <laughs> and at the end of the day, when the waiter catch me and say, what are you doing? We are selling croissant in this place. You can't do this. And I just go like, do you have croissant this good? And then they, they just quit. 
So, so there aren't photographs of Alex all over cafes, all over Paris. <laughs> I'm wanted in every... No, 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 I'm, I'm not even wanted. That's the beauty of You're it. You're not wanted. Everybody... No, because everybody's doing this. They're huh? sneaking croissant at their local cafe. And the cafes, <laughs> to be honest, they have, they have given up on this. They, they know we are doing it and they're fine with it. So next time you're in Paris, you can do it. So if I want to be recognized as being French, I, at least I could bring my own croissant and I would be a step closer. Yeah, I, th- I think so. <laughs> Just avoid the beret. The beret, I, I wouldn't go that far. And, and never order a croissant that's crescent-shaped. Never. That would be a disgrace. Alex, thank you. You've given me great fortitude about how to become French and uh, what is the perfect croissant. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. That was Alex Inews, host of Alex, French Guy Cooking on YouTube. He's also the author of Just a French Guy Cooking. Alex Inews reminds one that the French don't take bad food lying down. They argue with a local butcher, the baker, and the pastry maker. If the croissant at the local cafe is second-rate, well, just bring your own. No, perhaps as Americans, we're just too polite to stop eating that mediocre scoop of chocolate ice cream or the soggy fries. I'd hate to think that we just don't know the difference. That's it for today. If you tuned in late or just want to listen again, you can download and subscribe to Milk Street Radio on your favorite podcast app. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, take an online cooking class, and order our latest cookbook, Milk Street Tuesday Nights. We'll be back next week, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Stephanie Cohn. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugarts. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Haley Fager. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chubab Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.